Hi folks, Travis McMacken here coming to you again from my office at Lindenwood University in the Religion Department here, Butler Hall on the St. Charles campus, and today I'm going to be talking a little bit about John Calvin, the great reformer of Geneva and one of the fathers of the Reformed tradition in which my own ecclesial tradition, the Presbyterian Church, stands. I've been getting some questions lately about John Calvin, and it's one of the things I love to talk about. Also, I'm teaching a class right now covering the Reformation, and next week we're finally getting to Calvin, and I'm going to be lecturing on him, so I'm looking forward to that. And so it seemed like a great opportunity to uh, put together a little video answering some questions about John Calvin. Now, I've got five questions to talk about briefly today, and they were put together by Lauren Larkin. And if you want to follow Lauren on Twitter, which I recommend, you can find a link to her account down in the information section of the video. She brought together these questions for me today, and so now I get to try to answer them. So, the first of these questions, I'm just going to read this one. It says, on biography.com, I read that Calvin was known for an intellectual, unemotional approach to faith that provided Protestantism's theological underpinnings, whereas Luther brought passion and populism to his religious cause. End quote. If this is a true statement, what are some examples that support this idea? Well, the whole problem there is in the if. Uh, this is not necessarily a true statement. Uh, it does encapsulate some of the stereotypes that have gone with uh, Calvin and Luther through the years, but it's hard to know how much of this is actually reflected by reality. The idea that Calvin was unemotional, for instance, um, is a what I, I can consider it a great misconception. Uh, I could show you letters uh, from Calvin when his young infant son died uh, that will move you nearly to tears. Um, it's not that he was unemotional, it's that he was uh, an, an extreme introvert. And so he didn't really like being around people, but he had to be around them a lot. And uh, lots of his discomfort and his um, interest in uh, scholarly withdrawal comes from that kind of a personality. But it, very affectionate things to say about his wife, uh, very sad things to say about her death, about her, his son's death. Uh, so it's hard to understand Calvin as entirely unemotional. And Luther, as somehow passionate but not intellectual, that doesn't really work either. Because, as we have to remember, Luther uh, became a master of theology in the late medieval disputational form. Uh, he wrote a commentary on Lombard, and he was uh, perfectly comfortable operating in that world. Uh, very smart guy, very intellectual guy. Uh, but, at the same time, uh, less of an introvert, we could say. Much more of an extrovert, especially later in his life. He enjoyed having people around his table. And we have records of that, so he comes off with a very different personality than did Calvin. But I would not in any way reduce this to a question of um, into cold intellectualism and uh, passionate uh, emotionalism on either side. It's a lot more complicated than that. All right, next question. I've never fully known to what extent Calvin was exposed to Luther's thought. Um, so the question here is whether uh, Calvin was reading Luther early on in his reforming career. And to answer this question, I had to get out a book. This is Bruce Gordon's book on Calvin. One of the best resources out there today for uh, Calvin's biography and cutting through all the history surrounding it. 
And so I dug in here and uh, we'll just draw your attention to a couple different parts of, of this book. So on page 37, Gordon is talking about uh, Calvin's involvement in a lecture given by Nicholas Kopp. And it was this lecture that actually led to Calvin having to flee Paris originally and go into exile. And he points out that this text uh, draws very heavily on distinctly Lutheran themes. So we don't know exactly which uh, texts of Luther that Calvin is reading, but he's definitely very familiar with Lutheran theology. And this is really early on. This is before Calvin has surrendered his uh, Roman benefices and so on. So he's definitely conversant with uh, Lutheran theology in his earliest stage of uh, being a reformer. And we don't know, tradition says that Calvin wrote Cop's address, hard to say for sure. There is a copy of that address in Calvin's handwriting. We don't know if that's him writing it or him copying it or what, but he seems to be closely involved with its preparation. So there at the absolute earliest level, we know that Calvin is engaging with Luther to some extent. If we jump ahead a little bit, and in Gordon's book, this is on page 57 and following, he's talking about Calvin's first edition of the Institutes. If we look at that first edition of the Institutes, which my students are going to start reading in another week or so, if you look at that, it's organized very much on the pattern of Luther's catechism. The topics that Calvin covers and the order in which he covers them are very much modeled on Luther. And so there we have a more direct textual connection to know that Calvin is looking at Luther's material. And just in general, uh, Calvin always expressed the highest respect for Luther and uh, defended Luther to others, even when Luther's temper got the best of him. For instance, in conversation with the Zurich reformer uh, Bullinger and some of the other pastors there on the topic of the sacraments, uh, Calvin writes to them, uh, begging them to uh, be a little more gentle with Luther, since Calvin says, all of us are indebted to him. And Calvin really understood himself as a student of Luther, and uh, when I'm feeling kind of ornery, I sometimes like to argue that Calvin was in fact Luther's truest student and the truest heir to the Reformation that Luther uh, brought about. Okay, next question. I'm intrigued by Calvin's concept of law. I know it's different from Luther's, but sometimes I hear people speak of both reformers' concepts of the law with greater uniformity than I think is there. Calvin seems very intentional about this, so, and I'm paraphrasing now, uh, what's going on with Calvin's account of law. So for this one, I had to dig, well I wanted to dig anyway, into my copy of the Institutes. This is the McNeil edition. Uh, it's kind of the definitive English translation for the 1559 uh, Latin edition of the Institutes. And if you go into book two in here, which is in volume one, and if you look in chapter seven, you get Calvin's teaching on the law. And he lays out the three uses of the law. So the first use of the law is um, basically to say that it scares you into realizing that you need grace. This, he's drawing on Augustine to make this point. I'm looking in uh, paragraph 9 in chapter 7 of book 2. Then if you move into chapter or paragraph 10, he gets into the second use. He says the second function of the law is this. Uh, at least by fear of punishment to restrain certain men who are untouched by any care for what is just and right, unless compelled by hearing the dire threats uh, in the law. So this would be kind of a civic use of the law. 
uh, as a pattern for positive law, for the laws that, are, can, that can be established by government to regulate people's behavior, criminal law, we might say today. So that's another use that Calvin sees there. So on the first uh, use, it drives you toward recognizing a need for grace. On the second use, it provides a pattern for civil life. Now these two uses of the law are very, very clearly articulated in Luther and the Lutheran traditions, but typically they don't go any further than that in articulating clear, thematized uses of the law. But Calvin does. Calvin and the Reformed tradition does. So, if you move on to paragraph 12 in chapter 7 of book 2, uh, you get to the third use of the law. And Calvin says it's the third and principal use. So it's the most important as far as Calvin is concerned, which pertains, he says, more closely to the proper purpose of the law. It finds its place among believers in whose hearts the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. They profit by the law as an instrument through which they learn more thoroughly the nature of the Lord's will to which they inspire, uh, aspire. So in other words, the third use of the law for Calvin, the principal use, the proper purpose of the law, is to give believers a roadmap for how they should be living after having received grace. So it's not in this case that you have to satisfy the law in order to get grace. You get grace, and then the law tells you how you live after that. He calls it the third and principal use. It's the most important one for him. This has really interesting parallels to um, more recent research in uh, Second Temple Judaism and Second Temple Jewish thought, uh, the idea of covenantal gnomism, where uh, oh, adherence to the law is part of a flourishing life rather than a precondition that you have to meet. So interesting stuff there with Calvin. Now, on the Lutheran side, it's not the case that the basic idea that Calvin is communicating in the third use of the law is absent from Luther and Lutheran thought. It's there, it's just not thematized as clearly. They don't separate it out and give it its own heading. So, I've got another book for you. <laughs> it looks backwards to me. Um, it's by Sun Young Kim, and its title is Luther on Faith and Love. <laughs> if you can see that, I don't know. Uh, Luther on Faith and Love. And this book uh, makes exactly that argument. It's a reading of Luther's texts that demonstrate that he's interested in the content of the third use of the law, has his own way of articulating it, but it's not thematized in the same way in the Lutheran tradition. Okay, we're through three out of the five questions. Let's see here. Uh, number four. If Calvin truly has a high view of the sovereignty of God in salvation and acknowledges God's divine work on our behalf, then why does he seem to involve human efforts at keeping the law in the Christian life? Does this take away from God's sovereignty or limit where it is applicable? Uh, I think the key word here would be seem. Does he seem to involve human effort at keeping the law in the Christian life? Now, if you understand the third use of the law, yes, you need to uh, pay attention to your keeping of the law as part of your sanctification, but it doesn't have anything to do, for Calvin, with your justification. You receive that regenerating grace, you're awakened to faith by the Holy Spirit, which unites you to Christ, and then as a consequence of that, you begin to follow the law and base your life on that pattern. It shows you how to live. Uh, but in terms of sovereignty, I think the question is, 
really, at the end of the day, about the relationship between divine and human agency in Calvin. Uh, if God is ultimately sovereign over everything, why do people have to be told to obey? Isn't this just going to work out however God has decided it to work, that it's going to work out? Now, for Calvin, I think there's three points here that we need to keep in mind. The first one is Calvin and the Reformed tradition always say that God ordains not only the ends, but also the means. God ordains not only the ends, but also the means. Not only uh, the goals and the purposes, uh, but also how to get to them, the intermediate steps. So, for Calvin, God is ordaining what you should be doing in the here and now as you're progressing toward the final determination, the final things that God has set up. And so you have to pay attention to those intermediate steps. You can't just say, okay, uh, I've gotten justifying grace. God's going to take care of whatever else is going to happen. I'm going to finally uh, end up in heaven at the end of the day. Calvin wants to say no. Uh, between that justifying grace and that perfection of it, uh, when you die and are taken into heaven, there's all this other intermediate stuff too. And God has made decisions uh, about this that we need to have taken into account. The second point is another distinction. In addition to God ordaining ends and means, Calvin wants to say that God has both a hidden and a revealed will. A hidden will and a revealed will. Now, this uh, distinction can create all kinds of theological problems. And this is really uh, something that Karl Barth harps on in the Reformed tradition, uh, and also on Luther, but from a different angle. So this is a problem that uh, creates lots of problems theologically. But what it does for Calvin is it allows him to say that you do not know all the particulars of God's will. You just know all the main trend lines, you know the basic shape, so that it's up to you, because you don't know exactly what God's decided for you to do, you have to make those decisions along the way, and that we need to take those decisions into account, so that uh, God might have determined for you to do this good work, you don't know that, you have to decide for yourself whether you're going to do it. God might have determined for you to, uh, uh, that you will sin in a certain way, Calvin doesn't want to make God the author or the cause of sin. He says, look to the, to the more proximate cause, which is you. Uh, but it may be part of God's plan that this terrible thing happens. But when you're on the, uh, the before side of that event, you have to make your own decisions about how you're going to behave. And you can't just uh, push that off on God as though God told you exactly what's going to happen and you're just marching through some kind of a stage play. You don't have the script in advance. That is all hidden from you. All you know is that God has told you to live a certain way. Remember, third use of the law and it's up to you to follow through with it. But what we basically come down to here is I'm convinced that Calvin is interested in setting up a non-competitive account of, the divine, of divine and human action, where the idea that God's uh, ordaining things, God determining things, God acting, that does not conflict or cancel out human deciding and acting and agency, that somehow these two things work together in a compatible way uh, and are operating at two different levels of explanation. So uh, I think that's what Calvin wants to do. I don't think he had the conceptual tools to do it very well. And so one of the problems you get in Calvin on this point is he's groping for tools and he doesn't always grab the most efficient ones. Okay, last question. Uh, the framework that the Reformation has provided through people like Calvin 
points to a loving, glorious God who offers rest, uh, relentless grace to sinners, gives the gift of genuine faith, the truth of Scripture, and assurance in Christ alone. In light of these benefits, why is it that some within certain areas of evangelicalism uh, still have the stigma and a passionate opposition and fear uh, to and of Calvin? That's a really great question, and I wish I knew exactly why this was, because then uh, I might be able to come up with some ideas of how to fix it, because I don't think people need to be afraid of Calvin. Also shouldn't be afraid of criticizing Calvin once you understand exactly what it is he's trying to do. Uh, but basically, uh, on my read, North American evangelicalism has at least two distinct strands. There is a intellectualist or rationalist uh, reformed kind of strand in evangelicalism. There's also a pietist uh, Wesleyan sort of strand in evangelicalism. And this uh, Wesleyan strand does not follow the Augustinian uh, synthesis to nearly the extent that the Reformed strand does and the Reformed tradition does. So Calvin is really working out implications of uh, Augustine's doctrine of predestination and how that applies to the Christian life. But the Wesleyan approach is much less concerned with that and much more concerned with um, e emotional connection with God or some kind of... Um, see, I, the tradition is so foreign to me that I even have trouble articulating it. But uh, this piety. And Calvin had plenty of piety of his own, but it's of a slightly different brand. Uh, so, when you get in evangelicalism is a big group of people who really like Calvin, on the one hand, and then another big group of people who really don't. And it's because these two forms of evangelicalism are out there, uh, kind of coexisting. And then from time to time, bumping up against each other and uh, having struggles over people like Calvin and whether they should be paid attention to today. So, wow, uh, I did not think that this video would go on quite so long answering five questions, but I hope it was helpful to you. I hope I haven't been talking too fast. Um, you can always just watch it again. And uh, be sure to check the links down below. You want to visit Lauren's uh, Twitter account. My Twitter account link will be down there. And I hope to connect with you sometime. Catch you around.